Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, May the 5th, 2023, and as appropriate, I guess, for a Friday, the end of the week, we've been looking back a lot, not at the beginning of the week, but in some ways, the beginning of the century in tech terms. We've been thinking about the beginnings of our social media age. We did a show earlier this week with the former Wall Street Journal reporter, Julia Angwin. She wrote the first book on MySpace. Uh, then another show with Jeff Jarvis in New York, one of the pioneering bloggers who spoke to me about the origins of blogging. Um, we've done shows in the past with Glenn Reynolds, a, another of the founding bloggers, uh, the author of the Instapundent blogger, and with Stephen Levy on the inside story of Friendster, MySpace, Fe uh, Facebook, and TikTok. Uh, Levy's probably the pre preeminent tech journalist of the age. And then earlier today, I did a show with Ben Smith, uh, another very influential media executive, the uh, original editor-in-chief at BuzzFeed News about his new book called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. All of it suggests that we're on the verge of a new age in media. No one's quite sure what it is, but we know that the old social media age seems to be coming to an end. I thought it was a, a good opportunity to talk to an old friend of mine, Bernard Moon, who is the co-founder of Spark Labs Group, uh, uh, a Korean-focused or at least internationally-focused venture group, a man who I've known for many years. He's joining us from San Francisco. He's just back from uh, New York. Bernard, how long have we known each other? When did we first meet? I think it was around what, 2003, 2004. What were you doing back then? Um, I think I just moved to San Francisco, and then I was on my third startup at that time um it was with uh the you know as you, you know i'm the old co-founder of red herring or i mean the founder of red herring and then we launched a, a enterprise focused uh platform sort of like uh at that time well it's myspace sort of dating ourselves but a myspace for enterprise which was probably several years too early so it's always too early, Bernard, until it's too late in Silicon Valley. So we, we met the beginning of the social media age. Those were, in some ways, very exciting times, in some ways, dark times after the, the dot-com crash of, of 2000. Yes. Given the changes that are going on today, particularly around AI, how similar do you think 2023 years and the early 2020s to uh, the first few years of the 21st century? Well, I think we're we're entering another sort of, I would say, um, dangerous era. You know, I don't want to be a naysayer, but you know, I would say to some degree, uh, you know, social media and the growth of it, and sort of the viral clickbait. Um, you know, I think various people, pundits, have wrote about it how it's uh, divided much of America and divided much of the world, and there's to some degree some dumbing down effect. Right, and I guess that would be my concern right now as we enter this whole AI age is, um, you know, I, I think it'll increase productivity, but also will it, you know, 
dumbed down again, you know, a, a large portion of our society. And also it, just in terms of productivity, would, will it benefit everyone, hopefully, or would it only really benefit the top performers, the top 10, 20% in the workforce? So th those are just some early concerns I have. You know, yeah, I just, and I, as you yeah. know, I've written books about this. I, I completely share your concerns. Smith's book is about BuzzFeed and Gawker and the way in which traffic became a drug to uh, many internet entrepreneurs, particularly who owned media companies. Do you think he's right? Was this obsession with traffic ultimately counterproductive to a new media, a digital media? I mean, counterproductive in what way? Maybe for these companies, it was very beneficial. Well, it was beneficial in that some people got very rich at Facebook, yeah. at Twitter, but not beneficial in terms of, as you suggested, it divided people. And secondly, ultimately, it didn't build viable media companies. Uh, BuzzFeed just shut its news operation. Gorka yeah. was sued out of existence, and I don't think anyone is mourning Gorka. It was a rather nasty operation. But it, it doesn't seem as though over the last 20 years, uh, Bernard, many long-term viable media companies have been born. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult, obviously, with most of the ad dollars, you know, over the past 10, 20 years, going to Google and Facebook and uh, these other sort of internet giants across the globe. I mean, just being a, a standard media company, um, it, it is very difficult to create a sustainable model and try to pull the ad dollars from these social media and internet giants, uh, not just in the US, but it, uh, across the globe. Um, and, and then just a concern is like, the, obviously, the ancillary effects of the quality of journalism, the quality of writing, I think that has, um, you know, decreased because of this. I struggle with this, Bernard, in, in terms of, quote, unquote, monetizing my product, my podcast, my writing. We're all too dependent on advertising, and I think that's one of the arguments that Smith makes, implicitly at least in traffic, is that this obsession with traffic uh, was, was, was built on the idea that the more traffic you got, the more money you could make through advertising. Has the model worked, Bernard? You've been in it, and you've been in the business a long time. You get pitched all the time by new media companies. You were in you worked for Red Herring back in the day when it was a conventional magazine. Well, not Red Herring. Uh, I worked with the co-founder when he was doing uh, Always On. But Yeah. Oh, that was it. So who was that? That was uh, Tony Perkins. He, right. Tony uh, Perkins, who yeah. did Always On, who, yeah. who who was an early, early tech journalist and entrepreneur. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't involved that much on the on his media company side we were, we were just trying to do a software startup together um but anyways going back to your question i mean no i think that is a real struggle with just the whole media space in general and after the whole even the first internet boom is just trying to find this the sustainable business model it's been a struggle for the past decades and i don't know if there's a solution you know it, you know some light at the end of the tunnel uh, especially now with AI and then writing becoming um, easier in some aspect, um, I think it's a more it's more threatened. So I, I just don't know the solution. So. Yeah, and not only is it more th 
I mean, writing becomes easier, but of course, harder and harder to monetize because as machines can write as well as most humans, then how is anyone going to make any money out of it? You retweeted uh, a piece about Jeffrey Hinton leaving Google uh, and the, his warning about the dangers ahead. Do you think he's right? Is Hinton um, correct to, to warn that we really need to address the social, the intellectual, and the economic, and perhaps even the political ramifications of the AI revolution? I, I think to some degree. I mean, I haven't really gone deep in, in, into the debate on both sides at this time, but, you know, I, I think, you know, early on at this time, there needs to be some guardrails. Like I said, even at, you know, the beginning of this conversation, I, I do have concerns on how it's going to affect society and especially even just human development, right? Because I, I have friends in various academic circles, and for the past 10 plus years, they're already talking about how the quality of writing of university students that they teach, whether it's in history or philosophy or other subject matters, um, you know, it, it has noticeably gone down. So they're just already concerned about the quality of thinking, right? Which I think write, writing sort of reflects upon a society. And now with AI and making writing sort of easier and the average student lazier, I mean, I think that's a real danger, right? Even though all this talk of you hear especially parents with kids. I mean, we have three young kids. Talk about, oh, kids are so much more, you know, smarter these days, so much more competition. And, you know, sometimes I, I disagree. And especially with AI looming, it, it might make, you know, the future generation on average, you know, less intelligent. Yeah, which isn't saying much given the current generation, which is weaned on TikTok and, and, and Facebook. What impact do you think? You've got young kids. My kids are slightly older. What impact do you think all this social media has had on um, on the generation that has been brought up on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok? Um, well, I, I mean, generally, I would see at least among their friends, like they, um, you know, they don't think in terms of sort of long prose, like I said, which is, I, I would say, requires sort of deeper, longer thinking, you know, w when they're writing about th different subjects. Um, with information like right at their fingertips, they could just quickly, you know, scan and, um, and if they're industrious or smart, they could just quickly sort of pick out the right phrases, the right topics, the right nuggets of information to include um, in what they're writing. So there, there's a lot of, I would say, shortcuts that are provided to this generation that, you know, in some sense, I guess, makes them lazier. So that, that's just a concern. As I said, you are the co-founder, very much involved with Spark Labs Group, uh, ecosystem builders and investors across the globe with a particular focus on career. Um, how are you finding the impact of some of the stuff we've been talking about, particularly social media, education, learning, and perhaps tech addiction. Is it similar around the world or is career perhaps in some ways different, um, more productive, and perhaps there's a more optimistic world being built in career in contrast with the United States? Um, yeah, I mean, we're active in Korea, but we're, we've, we're active throughout Asia and the US. Um, I wouldn't focus on the social media aspect, just sort of taking a step back. I would say that just the internet and knowledge sharing in general has allowed 
uh, the world to become flatter in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of knowledge of how to share, of how to build a company. Uh, I think that's the net positive effect of social media and just the internet in general. Um, it also has allowed sort of a, a change of culture, right? Everyone wants to try to copy Silicon Valley and this sort of pay it forward culture, which is, which would be more difficult to do without the internet. And I think that has allowed um, some ecosystems throughout the world to start adopting that. And it's a slow change, but you know we've seen it in Korea, we've seen it in uh, Taipei, where we're active in, and, and other places. So I think that's the net positive uh, of today's sort of uh, you know media age. Bernard, how concerned are you with the growing trade wars, the xenophobia, the hostility towards Chinese tech? Many people in America believe that TikTok should be banned. Is this something that you're seeing in, in Asia as well in terms of attitudes to American technology? Are we on the brink of a new techno-cold war? Well, I think that's been playing out for the past decade. And then um, the dividing lines are between China and the U.S. And I, I will say without going into details, like countries in Asia are cautious about uh, China, like, like the U.S. is, right? Um, because they have been aggressive in, sort of in um, obtaining IP and the latest technologies from different corners of the globe. So I, I think the threat is real. Um, I just don't know, you know, I can't say really to what degree. So. When people talk about TikTok, particularly critics in the United States, they somehow associate it with the Chinese state and the Chinese communist regime. Is that right? Or are, is the startup world and the tech world in China, in your view at least, and how you see it, is it independent mostly of the state? Um, again, I can't say to what degree, but I, I do think there is some level of influence, um, but it's just hard to measure, right? So uh, I'm not really a, a deep expert in, in this area, so. Bernard, what are you seeing in Asia in terms of innovation that perhaps is missing uh, in the U.S. ecosystem in, in Silicon Valley? You live in the Bay Area, but you travel very frequently to East Asia. What's happening on, on the Asian front in Taiwan, in Taiwan and Korea in particular that excites you about the sorts of innovation and projects and startups that you're investing in at Spark Labs? Um, well, I, I think it depends on the ecosystem, but I think Korea continues to churn out and innovate across consumer, consumer and enterprise landscapes for startups. I think it's an exciting for us as we see the ecosystem mature. Um, like the U.S., I think first-time entrepreneurs are trending towards that. Um, you know, average age in the U.S. for first-time entrepreneurs is about 40, 41. And we've seen that also um, in Korea, like trending towards like 38, 39. I think that's a good thing because um, these are older entrepreneurs, experienced entrepreneurs that are tackling sort of these hard problems. Right. Korea has always been active in biotech, and there's been a lot of innovation in biotech. So you'll see these older founders in their 40s and 50s start new biotech companies. But now you also see it in other areas such as AI, enterprise software, uh, chips, etc. 
Um, Taiwan also has been surprising to us because, you know, we launched about four years ago and we thought it would be more um, hardware focused. And there has been some good companies, a company called Neuron. They do AI on the edge. Uh, it's an AI chipset. Uh, but also uh, Taiwan has churned out good software plays. So we've seen uh, more diversity in the different types of startups that have been launched um, uh, from Taiwan. So that's, I think, um, a, a good thing. And then um, we always see sort of interesting innovations, even out of like Australia. We have an ag tech, food tech accelerator there. Um, you know, we see innovations across the board. Um, so it, it's been exciting. Asia has been exciting and good for us. What about Japan? Do you do much work there? Of course, back in the 80s and even 90s, people saw Japan in the same way as many people see China now as a threat, uh, as a pirate of U.S. technology. Is there much innovation? The, 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 the Japanese economy has gone through a very, very long recession, which it seems to be getting out of now. Yeah, um, I, I think Japan, if anything, has been frustrating for us because we've considered launching um, either an accelerator or a fund there over the past uh, several years. Um, it, it does have world-class engineering ta talent, uh, no doubt. Uh, the ecosystem is, is fairly strong there, um, but the venture capital system or, or the players there, th there aren't as many or um, as mature as the U.S. or other parts of Asia. And also there just isn't that, um, I would say, um, entrepreneurial drive that you might see in, in South Korea or even Taiwan or other places in Asia, um, like Vietnam. Um, I, I think the main thing is, is this sort of the soft issues for Japan, you know, having this entrepreneurial drive and, and taking the risk of entrepreneurship, which is just not there yet. Is it also in Japan this cultural fear of failing, which perhaps is different in the rest of Asia, which you have to accept if you do startups, you don't need me to tell you this, Bernard, most startups, even the best ones fail. Yeah, I, I would say that's, that's, that's definitely part of it. it it's, it's just not, um, it's less acceptable in Japan than I would say other places. I mean, even, even though Korea, uh, from the nineties, uh, created, you know, billion dollar exits, billion dollar tech unicorns, there was still an overhanging sort of fear of failure, but there were also people that wanted to, you know, tread differently and start these uh, internet companies from the 90s. Um, Japan has had some of that like Rakuten, but it hasn't had as much for a country of its size. So I think there just needs to be sort of more examples, more successful entrepreneurs to help sort of stir the pot in, in Japan. You mentioned uh, Vietnam, Bernard. Uh, I'm also curious about Thailand. My brother lives in Thailand. Um, uh, other smaller countries in, in Southeast Asia. Are there? Is there much innovation, um, even in in, uh, in Myanmar? Uh, and and of course, there's Singapore as well. Which I'm curious as to your take on how much startup innovation is coming out of there. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a, a growing number of startups and innovation come from Southeast Asia in general. Um, Singapore has steadily uh, grown over the past decade. 
you know, with even like five, six years ago with proper Series A funds. Um, Indonesia is always a country that's, you know, uh, sort of too big to ignore now, right, with a population of uh, about 260 million. And um, I think a large percentage of that, of that population is under 30. Um, the question there is, is whether the population has um, a large enough, large enough segment of people with disposable income to sort of create these large, uh, l- large unicorns within the country. I mean, there obviously already has been some, but uh, the, you know, is it enough to sustain more? And then uh, I would say uh, Vietnam is very interesting just because there's a growing uh, base of software talent and talent in general, and they're very entrepreneurial, very driven. Right? You, see, you see a lot of startup activity coming out of Vietnam too, which has, which has been exciting. For people watching, Bernard, who might be interested in pitching Spark Labs, if they're an entrepreneur, perhaps in Asia, what areas are you particularly interested in? And what stage startups do you look at? Are you an early stage investor? Yeah, we focus on uh, seed and Series A. Um, We have different fund vehicles for that. And then uh, in terms of industries, we're generalists. We invest across the board everything probably besides pharma. So we joke around anything online, not illegal, you know, what we'll invest in. So Let's end with AI. We started there. Um, as I said, you retweeted Jeffrey Hinton's warning about AI. Today, uh, President Biden announced uh, 15, I think, new labs to investigate the implications of AI. He's putting several hundred million dollars into it. What do you think we, and I, and I use that word collectively, you and I and the rest of the tech community have learned over the last 20 years about managing this latest technology, which, as you suggested at the beginning, has enormous amount of potential both for good and bad. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, there's always the naysayers that come out, right, at the beginning, right? And there's, there'll be more naysayers than, um, I would say, uh, people that sort of talk about the benefits, right? Or the naysayers get more more media attention. But I, I think most- They get bigger book deals, Ben. Yes, yes. So I think, uh, but eventually we'll, we'll figure it out in terms of how, how best it'll impact productivity across, you know, sectors, across different industries. So, you know, I'm hoping it'll just be a net positive across the board for everyone. It won't create um, less jobs. It'll create more jobs and more opportunities. So I, I, I do think, though, there has to be obviously some, you know, thought put in place, right? Po- government, it's really difficult to put in policies that are really um, not reactive and proactive. So hopefully it'll be, you know, some general guide, you know, guardrails, but not nothing too restrictive that um, hinders innovation. So. Do you think venture people like yourself can help? Should you be involved in the process of creating those guardrails? Uh, I think to some degree, as long as there's not too much conflict of interest, right? So it's just finding the right sort of people. It's always hard, right? It's always hard to find the right people, the right group, uh, the right balance. Um, but, yeah.